My man. What's up? <laughs> my, my man. Ceylon cinnamon. Yep. C- I know all about that. C-E-Y-L-O-N yep. cinnamon. Totally. I just bought some, and mm. on the package it says most cinnamon claims to be Ceylon cinnamon, but it's not. It's like a mixture of four other types of cinnamon plus some other additives. But Ceylon is like pure cinnamon. You buy the sticks, and then I grind it up. It's really tasty. And it is there are there are claims and actually validated claims from the medical community. If you go to like PubMed, you can look this up. That uh, Ceylon cinnamon actually helps with insulin sensitivity. So if you have some Ceylon cinnamon before your meal, and I don't remember how much you need to take to affect your insulin sensitivity, but uh, if you have it before a meal, during a meal, or after a meal, it can actually help with that. So uh, for people like me that have a, a familial propensity towards diabetes and insulin spikes are not a good thing. Ceylon cinnamon can reduce and or lower those uh, those spikes. So I want to be very clear. I had never heard of that before. <laughs> <laughs> but sounds good. <laughs> Welcome to, or welcome back to, More in Common. This is our social experiment. See, everyone has a story that can help us learn from one another. And we bring people into this safe space that we have learned to create so we can learn about their stories and get into difficult topics that challenge us in conversation and ultimately how we think. And we have a lot of these conversations. And we're seeing a lot of similar threads through all of them. So what we're doing is breaking down these conversations to create a set of tools and a map that'll help you become a conversation boss so that you can be a catalyst for conversation in your day-to-day life. Get out to www.moreincommonpod.com to find all things more in common. All of it. Like, pretty much (laughs) everything. So, yeah. That's my plug there. Um, you know, share it. Share it if you if you sharing is caring. I truly believe that. We believe that. So share it if you if you feel inspired to do so. And uh, before we get into today's episode, like we always do, we like to look back at the previous episode and talk about what 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 touched us, what moved us, what we've been thinking about. And Keith, we just had Q. What? What'd you take away from that conversation? Well, I'm glad you used my name because it's, it's something that I think about a lot is we don't really use each other's name too much. <laughs> like we don't introduce ourselves or anything like that. But uh, just a, a, a diversion here for a second. Well, that's interesting. We just start talking. Like, so people are like, yeah. we don't know who like, Keith yeah, who's Keith, Rodney. who's Rodney. And they get to, get to know our voices, I guess. Um, but... Uh, yeah. I'm going to over-index. I'm like, hey, Keith, what do you think about that, Keith? <laughs> you know how I feel about my name being used. Um, well, how do you feel, Keith? Do you like it when people say Keith? Keith? <laughs> so as far as Q goes, though, like one of my favorite things in the conversation is how much he talks about athletes in a way of admiration. And that's his female athletes, right? Like his he, he talks about them in such um, adulation, and it is just an awesome thing, right? When it comes to 
creating space for equality, especially in sports. Um, I love his pragmatic nature too, of just the idea of males coaching females, um, in football, um, based on just the historical context of access and in, in playing of the sport. So, you know, those were two, there was just a lot of goodness and just a lot of goodness from Q in general. Just, you know, it's kind of like Jamil, right? Like just that, that, mm. that vibe is just, it feels good talking to him. Um, but those were two things that they really stuck locks. with me. Yeah. Interesting. Something about locks that just makes you like a big, hard <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's just people with locks who are just really, really, you know, welcoming and chill. So let's break okay. down that bias. <laughs> um, as for me, I would agree, man. Like Q's bit, Q's heart and uh, his 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 uh, um, fact that he's getting out there and doing things. And I think I'm actually I don't think I mentioned this in the episode. I talked to him afterwards. Um, I'm I really like that his ministry is getting out into the streets and helping people that need help um, and like doing the things that a lot of churches talk about but don't. Mm. Some do, and, and some do, and sure. they should be committed, but others don't. And mm-hmm. um, and I just think that that's, like, I feel like we would be better off if more churches didn't exist as a building, and they just existed as people going out and helping people. Mm. And, um, yeah, so I just, I commend him for that and love it. And it inspires me to, it inspires me to do more through this platform that we're doing, because I think like just connecting people like this and trying to help people manage conversations and, and show up is, is a, is a version of that. But, uh, yeah, he's, he's inspirational. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, who is the guest for today? Oh, today, today we have Pete, Pete, Pete Mulroy. Pete grew up outside of Detroit, Michigan, you know, after graduating with a degree in astrophysics, In a stint with NASA, he returned to graduate school to study planetary atmospheres uh, to launch a sounding rocket and to work at JPL, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He has a deep passion for history and understanding what the past means for today. He now lives in Italy as he has always been a dual citizen, gracing people with his knowledge of Roman history as a city tour guide. So talking to Pete is always an opportunity to learn and have a great discussion. I'm glad we could have him with us. We talk about his interest in U.S. politics uh, since he's been in Italy for 20 years, or the last 20 years. Um, we talk about what it's like talking about politics in Italy and how they approach difficult conversations versus here in the U.S. Um, his growing up and kind of his path to JPL, Jet Propulsion Lab, and then going off to Italy. And in there, there's some interesting stuff about like him working for women and him like all the black people he know he knew had PhDs. So like when people were just just real cool conversations in there. And um we get into a lot of other stuff. So I'm I'm gonna stop and let you guys just get into it. Um if I any observations before they do? Pete's smart. He's really smart. Yeah. Um there's that. Yeah. (laughs) I always enjoy talking to him. I, I also enjoy taking um tours with him so like if you're in italy if you're going to be in rome or near rome he does tours outside of rome as well i am definitely plugging the hell out of him he doesn't pay me for this yet i think (laughs) if i do it right i could maybe set that up but i would (laughs) highly recommend doing a tour with pete like for reals 
What about you on the conversation tip side? Um, you know, curiosity. Anytime there are some of our pillars that are in an episode, um, curiosity is is one of our pillars. I always call it out, right? Like just asking more questions to understand and dig deeper, right? Like sometimes you just don't understand what someone's saying and just asking a little bit more clarity helps level set where, where the conversation is. And in a second one, like just effective disagreement, right? Like being able to listen, understand, present your point, do so in a polite fashion that ultimately creates the space that can keep the conversation going and keep everybody in a in a safe place and we do that very well um, when we start talking about term limits because we talked about politics in this episode so just listen for that right and how that all navigates so um with that being said you know enjoy the show as always and uh pass along any feedback if you ever have any Here in Italy, you talk about everything, especially the things that you're not supposed to talk about. Those are the most interesting. And um, where in the States, it doesn't seem you can have civil discourse anymore. You're in one tribe or another. Here in Italy, um, we're still willing to have the conversations, even if they're uncomfortable, that in the States, people avoid just because, well, your tribe believes that, my tribe believes this. We don't communicate anymore. meet a lot of people i mean i try writing nobody's bought my stuff yet um and i always joke um because i wrote a screenplay nobody bought it i wrote a novel nobody bought it somebody asked me what kind of writing um pays best and i just joke i assume ransom notes but um maybe we'll try that (laughs) next but here with uh well i'm not here uh we're remote but got my co-host keith and we are here with pete mulroy today pete how are you i couldn't be better thanks for joining us thank you for having me um so i yeah keith if you don't mind i would love to just jump in or yeah, do you I mean, want off the off the top i have questions to ask but go for it well you you mentioned something to us in the in our in our little preamble about uh, being really interested in U.S. elections right now. It's strange because you, you don't live in the yeah, U.S. right now. No, I haven't lived in the U.S. for quite some time. Um, half of the last twenty years, I've lived in Italy, and um, of course, Italy um, <laughs> keeps us in, entertained with our own politics. Yeah. But I'm just fascinated by what's going on in the states, probably because. Well, I grew up in the States. Um, I still have the same 35 cent pocket constitution that I bought when I was in kindergarten. And it's funny because um, it shows you how old it is. They, they put the Equal Rights Amendment in my pocket constitution. They were just so sure it was going to pass. <laughs> wow. I have one of those. I don't think it was 35 cents, but I have one. So being that you've spent that much time in Italy in the last 20 years, why are you so interested in 
the are you more interested in the current election cycle so the 2018 midterm election cycle than you have been in any other recent american elections or what's what's your take on that yeah i mean um i obviously i still have family in the states i have 10 nephews and nieces that i care about deeply in the states but um when i left um well the last time i left I mean, I left Italy, I mean, the States the first time in the 90s. I had moved back to the States after my mother had passed away. I, I came, went back basically for the funeral and didn't leave for a few years. And um, But when I came back here permanently again, I was during President Obama's tenure. And I'm like, well, the States are in good hands. Don't have to worry about my nephews and nieces. The future is going to be fine. But just uh, the last two years of just um, truth isn't truth. Um, science doesn't matter. It's how you feel. Experts aren't um, considered. It's, um, you know, <laughs> I'm president and you're not kind of thing. It just it's it's very disconcerting. What's that like uh, generally? I mean, obviously, Italy has its its uh, own interesting political climate these days. Ber Berlusconi um, much. What is it yeah, like I mean, um, in being in Italy while this is all going on? Do other people care about it? Is it more a personal interest? It's hard to get away from. I mean, um, so I, obviously I do walking tours in Italy of Rome and the surrounding area. So I get a lot of English speakers, which means a lot of Americans, a lot of Brits with their Brexit, Australians, South Africans, anyone who speaks English. And um, it's always a topic on hand. And um, Americans, I mean, it's, it's always on their mind as well. And then my Italian friends, because politics, you know, in the States you're told never to talk about religion or politics. But it's usually because other people are afraid you're going to learn something. Where here in Italy, you talk about everything, especially the things that you're not supposed to talk about. Those are the most interesting. And um, where in the States, it doesn't seem you can have civil discourse anymore. You're in one tribe or another. Here in Italy, um, we're still willing to have the conversations, even if they're uncomfortable, that in the States, people avoid just because, well, your tribe believes that, my tribe believes this. We don't communicate anymore. What's this is um, interesting. What? What's that like? Like, is it people that sit at coffee shops and they just have conversations and everybody kind of walks away, disagree regardless? Um, is it, you know, how how does that play out culturally? Or do you just see it more civilly on your tours, like on, on a day-to-day -day basis? Because this is ultimately something that we're trying to help bring the states to or back to. Um, but seeing it, 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 you're saying it exists elsewhere. I'm curious what that looks like. Well, with the American tourists, um, they try to be more polite, but then if it, if it gets heated, it's a, it's, this is it. And, and, and that's it. So it's like, I believe in this. I'm not going to, I will not change my mind based on what you're saying. We're in Italy. It's usually over dinner, which lasts a few hours. And so it's not like there's a time limit. It's you're eating, you're talking, if somebody says something that's provoking, other people will respond. They may not agree. And it's, you know, you may have family members where one person, you know, is uh, vehemently, and this is Italy, so maybe they're very liberal, um, almost to the point where you'd call them a, a communist, where there's other people at the table that are very far to the right where you'd almost call them a fascist. Obviously, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it, I'm just saying it's a broad spectrum um, where there's some people who are the old Christian Democrats. Some, you mentioned Berlusconi, the Forza Italia type people. And then there's people like the Cinque Stelle, the, the very popularist movement. And um, they're all sitting at the table, all disagreeing. And, you know, these are Italians, so 
It could be loud and hands are waving, but sure. nobody's going away as an enemy. We're in the States. Mm-hmm. It's you know, people don't talk to other people anymore just because of who they voted for or the opinions that they hold. This is and and I want to take a pivot into from where you come, but this is an interesting point because oftentimes a lot of people will say, well, this is just the way people are, right? This is just how people are when based on that, you know, anecdotal, anecdotal evidence, we'll call it, you know, it's not Mm -hmm. a human condition. It's a cultural condition. It's a cultural condition that we permeate or perpetuate every single day by just saying, oh, it is what it is. So why change it? So it's fascinating. That's that's really interesting. Before we go too far down that, because I got more questions there. So many. Tell us a little bit about your background. You're from the States. I know you're from Michigan. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's, but I was physically about- born in New Orleans. My mother, my mother and father had met in Italy. My mother grew up during World War II. Actually, this is, it's strange. For my age, all my friends' dads fought in Vietnam. My father fought in World War II. My mother's town was occupied by Germans during World War II. After the war, many years after the war, my dad was um, an engineer. They were putting missiles in Greece, Turkey, and Italy before the Cuban Missile Crisis. My dad came through my mom's hometown on Easter with a buddy. That's where they met, and um, they got married. They moved. They were living in Turkey, and then when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, part of the deal was Americans would remove their missiles from Cuba. I'm not Cuba. The Russians from Cuba, but the Americans from Turkey, Greece, and Italy. So they ended up going to New Orleans because that's when the space program was going on. My dad was still an engineer. They were building boosters this time for the space program instead of nuclear missiles. And they were floating the boosters from New Orleans to the Cape. So that's when I came on the scene, but I don't remember this period too young. After the space program, it was Detroit and tanks. So he moved back home to Detroit. And that's um, where my first memories in life are growing up in Michigan. And then after school, I spent most of my time in California, came to Italy, you know, with my mother on holidays. My dad had passed away, you know, right after high school had finished. And then um, and during these trips, I just, um, I mean, I, I went to school, got a degree in astrophysics, worked at NASA at Goddard Space Flight Center, went back to grad school, then ended up getting married and moving to California, working at the Jet Propulsion Lab. Yeah. Things didn't work out. With, yeah, exactly. Um, great place. Um, I always say it's a you know, a toy store for adults. I mean, because some Did... of the crazy things that they come up with. So then after um, our project ran out, um, the WIP pick two, the Whitefield Planetary Camera two, John Trogger's um, was the PI. Um, I had to think about something else to do. Didn't want to make a long commitment because my marriage had ended, and I had taken the job basically for my wife. She wanted to move to California. So then um, after that, um, I made a movie, didn't go anywhere, and I was doing um, you know, a lot of things. I was writing, doing some web work, but taking a lot of vacations to Italy with my mother because uh, she wasn't doing so well, and then just realized, you know what, this always felt more like at home. Um, I'm talking to you right now, literally next door to where my aunt lives, two doors down is my cousin. My mother grew up like 20 meters from here, so it's... Um, this always felt a lot like home. Hey, so for the Americans, here. can you convert that into feet? Just just down the hall. Just multiply the by 3.3. 3. So wait, yeah. you, you, you go from JPL, your project ends, and then you go and make mm-hmm. a movie? Yeah. What movie? Actually, what, what, what was that? It was like, why that transition? 
Okay, I mean, it was just all these transitions were going on, um, trying to figure out what to do. I was up in Big Bear Lake, and um, through friends, met new, new friends, and there was a guy, um, Jay Schillinger, and he had written a screenplay, um, The Marksman, that Hemdale had bought. Hemdale had won a couple uh, Academy Awards, I think one for Platoon and one for The Last Emperor, and um, he goes bankrupt, so my buddy gets the screenplay back. And well, he's my buddy now, he wasn't at the time. And he's up there, we're sitting around, you know, playing volleyball and drinking, just hanging out. And he's like, um, what, sh what can I do? And I'm like, well, we'll make it. He's, and he asked me, what do you know about making movies? I'm like, nothing. But <laughs> at one time I couldn't walk or talk and I learned that pretty easily. And then I'm like, three years ago, I knew nothing about um, launching rockets. And I learned that, I'm like, it's a movie. Other people have done it, we can do it. And within a year and a half, um, I remember, showed up in his mother's basement with, you know, a couple boxes of office supplies. And within a few months of that had, you know, a hundred people working for us and had all the, the agreements with all the unions, the labs, the, you know, Panasonic and so on. So I don't it just seemed like another this, project. I don't want, so this, this complete pivot, maybe I'm doing a, a Rodney. I couldn't walk and talk, but I learned that pretty easily. Never. Have I thought about anything like that? Is that like a philosophy of yours? Do you think, like, is that how you will go about taking on challenges? Because I think, I mean, it's just kind of one of those that makes a lot of sense. Light bulb moment. Like a serious well, light bulb. Ron, you have yeah. an infant, right? Mm-hmm. So does Keith. I mean, you look at... Yeah, so do uh, I. Okay. Okay, you look at a baby. <laughs> I mean, when it's born, I've never had one, but I mean, I've had my nephews and nieces, but you look at them. They're incapable of doing anything except for eating, sleeping, and, and defecating, and that's about it. Um, within two years, they're walking around. Within a year or two after that, they're speaking in, in, in complete sentences. So none of us remember how we did that, but we all did that. And to me, that seems very difficult, going from a clean slate of nothing to be able to walk and talk. That seems very difficult. So I always think if I can do that, then, you know, learning That's, some math or you, learning. A, it's, I, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people beat themselves up like they're not doing well in life and they can't learn and this, that and the other. And it's like, but the evidence is there. Like you learn. Engl isn't English like the most difficult language to learn? If you're. It is. For a foreigner, I'm, I'm sure it is because <laughs> there are very few rules and. They contradict themselves. Yeah, there's there's so much nuance between. And it's like, but you learned like you learned English. You are native English. Like the evidence is actually already there, but we don't like the way you stated that so simply is like, wait, wait a second. Like, give yourself some credit. You just figured that out, huh? I just, I it is one of those things because we often, you know, there are so many motivational things and so many things out there. The power of the mind, the power of what you're capable. And you often just think, oh, I can't do that. It's impossible for whatever reason. And it's such a simple pairing to say, well, you'll learn to walk and talk when you couldn't even lift your head when you were first born. Like it, it, we take it for granted as a natural human condition. Well, if that's a natural human condition, why is that not a natural human condition for other things down the road? No, I'm not sure. I just think, okay. We're all monkeys in a sense, but we can be trained. It just um, some of us need more time. Okay, some people walk. Uh, I'm not sure how many months. I'd say six, and some at twelve. Some talk at you know two. Some talk at four. Whenever it is, it there's a it's a spread. So um, 
I think I could learn anything. It just, it may not be faster than anyone else. It just, it just, um, I mean, okay, going back to, to, to my parents, I mean, my dad graduates from high school as valedictorian. The next day he joins the army. I mean, my mother at the end of World War II, her mother and her brother had just died at the end of the war. You know, she's skinning rabbits at her dad's out and shooting. I mean, a lot of people had a, a lot worse. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. Um, you know, things were good back then. You know, Detroit was for a while once the the richest city in America. So there were opportunities. I mean, we didn't grow up, you know, rich, but I mean, it was well off in the sense that probably better than the, the average person in the States. The education was public and good. So it was public. It was, um, I hate to say it, probably a, a democratic utopia um, in a sense, but obviously with problems, Detroit's segregated, but the same grew up in this, this attitude that you could do what you want. You just have to do it. It's not going to be handed to you. It may not be easy, but you just have to, you know, the one foot in front of the other mentality. And it was also during the period where follow the rules and, you know, good people are rewarded, bad people are put in jail, the kind of things now, and you, you look around, it's like, wow, um, Sometimes it doesn't matter what you do and um, doesn't matter what you say. It, it's, um, I mean, I, I think I grew up at the peak of the American dream, you know, but um, then again, because it's me, I feel that way. I mean, maybe statistically or maybe it's not true at all, but it just, um, it feels a special time to me, obviously, because it happened to me. Yeah, when I think, I think for many it was, right? And then there's, there's others it wasn't. I mean, there's, you mentioned segregation in Detroit and, I mean, there are there are groups of people that it wasn't um, a boon for, but economically, I think the numbers would would uh, prove that out. No, but as a kid, um, okay, my first job, I'm washing dishes for two fifty an hour, and there were sometimes I can go to the movies, you know, for under four bucks. Right. Two, three years later, um, I remember in my off um, in the summers at, from college, I drove cars off assembly line in Sterling Heights, Michigan. And I'm making like five times that now. So I can buy five movie tickets every hour instead of one. So life was, you know, five times better. I mean, but we're talking the difference for a 15-year-old versus an 18-year-old. Yeah. But um, that's how I used to, to, to equate it. It's like, wow, things are getting much bit better. But nowadays, think about it. Now in the States, they're fighting for $15 an hour. In, in L.A., that's a movie ticket. So it's going backwards, back to when I was 15. Um, so there's adults, you know, doing adult jobs, you know, working in a factory, not like me washing dishes when you're a kid. There's like the paper out, the delivery pizzas, um, the things you traditionally did as a kid are now adult jobs because, well, a lot of those jobs don't exist anymore. And you're talking about um, like in the factories, it's not just that the jobs are gone. The jobs that remain are replaced by automation. Mm -hmm. So that's why um, and I hate that everything goes back to politics in the States, but sorry, for one, coal is dirty, no matter how you scrub it. But we, we should get away from coal, especially if global warming's an issue. But those jobs are gone because now there's machines that could do the work of 100 men. Yeah. It's like the factories that do remain in Detroit that kick out twice as many cars now, they do it with 20 times less people. You don't need a factory of 10,000. I hate to say it, it's mostly robots. Well, and you have 50 or 500 people watching the robots. John Oliver did a really good piece on mining and uh, Trump campaigned on this very strongly talking about how Obama got rid of their jobs and, and like some of the CEOs of mining companies hopped on that bandwagon like yeah yeah he did 
as they're cutting, as they're firing people, like as the person who actually ha- has to do with the jobs, and they w- were replacing jobs because they could strip a side of a mountain with two people and machinery, where they used to have crews of hundreds to do it. I think the reduction happened starting in the '90s, where every ten employees were replaced by one in the machine. Right, like the reduction. Oh, yeah workforce well it's starting that it's starting to even happen at a uh, fast food so like fa- what what's happening is as a uh, car like uh, toyota honda all the detroit car manufacturers have started to um get rid of like some of the the robots and machines that they've used on the factory lines uh fast food pizza mcdonald's like they're starting to look at well how much can we automate in our daily operations like it's because it comes down to efficiency the dollar like it that it's that age old, like how much can I get for how less, or how little? Yeah, I mean, you come to the McDonald's in Rome, you don't even interact with the person at first. There's a bunch of touch screens. You, you, you place your order there. You're not holding up anyone in line because there's so many of these um, these screens everywhere. Or you can do it with an app on your phone. And then um, I just think ahead with this automated uh, in terms of uh, driverless cars and trucks. You always thought, and this may sound bad, but it's like, okay, I can always be a truck driver thought. Always, if I ever need a job, mm-hmm. I could drive something, a taxi, a, a truck or something. But in 10 years, are all those jobs gone too? Which, yeah, which, when you think about it, puts us, the U.S., in a real big predicament when you see where we are as far, like on a global landscape and from an education perspective. Um, as we keep sliding down the math scales and the science scales, the language scales, it's like, well, we need highly skilled information workers in order to to have high tech jobs in the future. Yet we're not producing that workforce. And like I, oh, Keith, you weren't on it. There was a call the other day. I heard uh, from one of our coworkers that their school is no longer giving out grades. It's, yeah, they're it's, getting the crocodiles. They're giving out participation. It's like the trophy that everybody gets um, okay. in a sports thing. Like they're doing that in school. Like, thanks for showing up. You did it. Thumbs up. Like we yeah, are. Oh. I mean, that's that's, and I would argue that's a limiting perspective because education has changed. Is the old adage right? If you teach a fish to climb a tree, he's going to fail a hundred percent of the time. That's how the traditional education system that we find succeeds a b c d e f well, i guess there's no e in that um but that <laughs> that fails for a lot of people right so you know there are other school systems i i'm reluctant to judge that idea that we're not giving grades anymore because i hear that from from people in my family oh can you believe this change it's like yeah well it changed for us from when you did it and you had a you know your grand your parents had a problem with it like these things evolve, so I don't know the context or structure around that, but I think it's uh, I think it's interesting on the workforce piece because when you think about the the nature of automation, you know, at the end of the day, businesses the, the number one piece of overhead is employee, right? People yeah. cost more money than anything else, and if the number one oppor- the number one outcome that they're looking for isn't to give jobs, it's to earn profits. So how, how are you going to earn your most profits? By cutting your biggest cost. Well, how are you going to cut your biggest cost? You're going to find a way. Um, at the end of the day, the, the, the businesses have these, the, this, this structure ultimately creates a system as technology advances and people advance. And then I think there's a cultural aspect to it too, where like you said, Pete, when you were a kid, every job was an opportunity 
for some reason, and I don't know, maybe you have some perspective on this. Um, you've been around a little bit longer than we have where that shift went to devalue other jobs. It's like, if you don't go to college, you can't do anything. Oh, you've got to work at McDonald's. Okay. Well, McDonald's could be uh, a living for somebody. And I still yeah. want to go, you know, some people still, a lot of people want fast food. So you here's may a, need to work at McDonald's. Here's right? one area where it might be. And I like, were universities always the big business that they are now? I don't know if they were always the big business, but they, um, innovation leads to, you know, um, patents. So they were always creators for that. And it's funny, um, just to take a step back, that the term job creator, I can't stand because, like you said, businesses are in business to make money. No one's ever said, I want to open a business and employ people. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> they may have to employ people. They want to make money and they want to make things. Henry Ford was, you know, a forward thinker by paying his workers a daily wage, but he needed those people. He didn't want to always keep fighting for the, you know, the, the low wage seeker. It's like, I'll pay a good wage. People will want to come to work with me. Takes out the equation, finding employer, I mean, em employees, which was a huge problem for him to keep his factories going. So I just make it a wage where I never have to worry about employing anyone. I'll have people at the door. But that doesn't happen to happen anymore because now they've got, okay, at one time Detroit's the richest city in the world. They're kicking out cars. Um, the people I met, it was funny because they used to take me to the union hall. We get our beer and a shot. They, it's like, here's our college kid. You know, it's like they're all, they were mostly from the South, Tennessee and Kentucky. They were all high school dropouts. They're making big money in an auto factory. Their wives were at home. They had the cabin up north. And, you know, we're doing the same job. I want to go on to college. I want to do something else. I always wanted to know. I always knew I wanted to work for NASA. But it was nothing wrong what they were doing. And it was nothing wrong what I was doing. And it was like there was a camaraderie that we're doing the same job, even if temporarily. And then I don't know when all of a sudden they're like, well, we can ship these factories from Detroit to Mississippi. Instead of paying them 80 grand a year, they'll do it for 18 grand a year. And it's not like the price of cars went down. That profit just goes to the, the shareholders. And then somebody's, well, you know what? If we do this in China or Mexico, it's, it, it's just pitting worker against worker. And they, they've got you to the point where it's like you're thankful. I mean, think about it. the people of Mississippi. They vote the people in the office that give a billion dollars. I don't know if it's Mississippi or South Carolina they get, or Alabama that gives a billion dollars in, in uh, tax breaks to Mercedes to move this factory in. There's a reason that they can pay these people less money is because Mississippi or Alabama or South Carolina is now subsidizing this company. You're still um, you're still paying for it. You're just yeah. I mean, the taxpayer. So you're 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 raising your cost of living just so your neighbor can have an eighteen thousand. Um, not I'm not saying that eighteen thousand dollars a year is not a good job, but at one time it paid eighty grand a year, and they weren't we weren't fighting Michigan versus Mississippi. Um, I'd like to, I, if you. Ask me, I would say it happened under Reagan when he fired the air traffic controllers. Um, also, when there started this huge transfer of wealth from the, you know how it, when they say, well, it's unfair that, you know, 2% of the people pay 80% of the taxes. And yet it's true, it's unfair. Those 2% earn 98% of the money. Um, it's unfair that uh, people who don't earn pay more of a burden than people who, you know, have more money than they'll ever need to to deal with, but they've set up a system and I don't know when it started, but it's got us fighting each other for minuscule jobs. And we are thankful that we, you know, 
I mean, if you, you just watch these um, campaign rallies, you know, people are happy for any job that's coming to town. And if you read the, the newspaper, what's moving in, I mean, even in Detroit, when they open a new factory, everyone's exciting, but they're getting paid eight bucks an hour, nine bucks an hour. What happened to that job that paid $28 an hour? Well, it's not coming back, but um, I don't know. Well, they just got to fight for the one that you have drafts. now. What, what they, exactly? Why do you say, say the air traffic control? What, why do you think that was that event? I, I'm curious just because that's a huge event in my life because my dad became a controller on the heels of that. So I'm curious, like, what, what do you think that signaled or what, what do you think that kicked off? Breaking of unions. I mm-hmm. mean, if you think about it, I mean, I mean, just 100 years ago, 100 years ago in the States, kids weren't going to school. They're losing fingers in textile plants, you know, along the, the eastern seaboard. Um, Ten years after that, you know, factory workers are being shot and killed. Ten years after that, you have the Flint sit-down strikes and boom, it changed overnight. Um, factory workers of any sort, and it brought, it didn't have to be a union factory, and it didn't have to even be a factory job. All wages were raised. That um, the middle class, I mean, think about it, um, Detroit's success was also its burden. The history of the world, no city had more people owning their own homes. So you, you didn't have to live in a tenement building. I mean, you're just, um, and I just, I'm not saying it derogatorily, you're just the factory worker, just the normal job. And yet you're living larger than, you know, 98% of the people in the world. And then after firing in the air traffic controllers, it didn't happen overnight, but it keeps, it keeps progressing down. I mean, we're to the point where we're, you know, people are, are cheering that they're going to open a coal mine. I mean, think how ludicrous that is. That'd be like people in Detroit cheering that the bubby, the buggy whip factory is reopening. It's not happening or the typewriter factory. I think it's interesting, especially as it relates to the concept of MAGA, right? You know, make America uh, great okay. again. You know, make America great again. This this idea that everything you just framed up, right? Um, you know, job opportunities, uh, wages, uh, all of these things that people perceive as a better or greater time for, for them, right, based on their personal life experience, as Rodney said, not for all, because certainly, right. you know, in the 60s, 70s, 50s, 40s, 30s, you know, America hasn't been great for a lot of people for a long time. Um, but that concept somehow, you know, and this is the, the political landscape of, of the United States, has become a politicized concept. It's politics. These people did this to us. When every single day we talk about these different jobs as less than or lesser than, it has eroded the way we see each other in a working way. Like you said, unions, as an example, they exist for a reason. They have become more political than than necessarily helpful to the broader ecosystem. So corporations vilify unions because they cost them more money. At the, so, so let's make it political and then people buy into it, believe it, that ultimately it's the political machine that's keeping them down versus the nature of the business and the way business functions and operates. I'm not saying, you know, free market is the devil, but at the same time, we all need to realize what, what's important is each other and how we all support each other, earn money, 
prop each other up and make sure that we're taking care of this this world that may not just be mine, but businesses have interests. Businesses, for whatever reason, in the States, we have glorified business because you can make a million dollars out of being it. I'm not saying businesses are evil, but businesses are self-interested. At the end of the day, they want profit. We want to live the life we want to live. And if that's working for somebody else, great. But, you know, I shouldn't have to do it for $8 an hour when, you know, you talk about fairness. It's not fair that the top 2% pay 80% of the taxes. Well, it's also not fair that I make a wage, not me personally, that makes me have to decide whether I feed myself or I feed my kids. Right. Like that's it. it it's when, so backwards. When, when by the way, there's more than enough food for everybody here. More well, without enough. a doubt. And, and when I was saying about the, the small percentage of people that pay the huge percentage of taxes, it's not enough. They should pay even more because they earn even more. Um, it, it is interesting because how did we get to this point? The only time businesses are aligned with employees are when their interests are self-aligned. And which is rare. Like you said, a business wants to maximize profit. And I think, okay, I grew up, you know, the Reagan revolution and all that. And that was the headlights that I saw. But I changed my, my mind quickly when I moved to California. Hughes, and this is the event, Hughes Aircraft had like a quarter of a billion dollars in profit. Profit, not that they just eked out, but they made a quarter of a billion for their shareholders. Turns out it wasn't enough. They turned around and they laid off like 20,000 people in the Los Angeles area. Some people, some of these people I knew, but it's like, that's when I realized for corporations, there is not enough. You know what I mean? It's like they made a quarter of a billion dollar profit and they rewarded the people who helped them make that money by firing them. Yeah, just in the long run, they'll make even more. Well, it's all about year over year, quarter over quarter earnings. Like, how did you perform this quarter over last quarter? What'd you do for me this quarter? And, and I, like kind of like what Kent said, like, I don't think goals are bad. I don't think it's bad to want to achieve. I think it is bad to want to achieve on the backs of others and not, not reward those who helped you get there. Like, I, I don't know. Like it, it, it seems like there's some kind of a, like, like the basic relationship. And I can't speak to this personally cause I didn't work in the seventies in the U S but it seems like the basic company to employee relationship is 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 so strained now it's like a very tenuous like i'm just here because i gotta pay a bill and like we're just keeping you here because we can get this much out of you but as soon as we can't you're gone where it used to be like people the ten like people used to work at a, at ford for 30 like that they retire there that was their career um that doesn't happen very often at one place now and and the relationship yeah, no. of people is amongst each other as it relates like that concept of you should be thankful for the job you have and it's it's a scarcity model because someone else doesn't have the job you have it be grateful for it well yeah so basically also thank you yeah, like so. Basically, what you're telling me is, even if I have no job, I make no money, right? So if you pay me one dollar an hour to work ninety hours a week, 
I should be thankful for it because I could have no money. Somebody else has no money. That's that's not an equal system of employment that at the employee level, it perpetuates itself. I'm happy. You should be happy, too. Right. right. It's it's it's, you know, the, well, it's the also divide of men and women. Right. Like there's unequal pay. Yeah. But, you know, you're still making a lot of money. It's 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 also I mean like that's true like the whole like oh you could be making no money and I and I use this argument like to myself to keep me doing things all the time but but like just because there is a child starving in Africa doesn't mean that my situation here isn't couldn't be better or like isn't bad like those two things can both exist correct they are not mutually right. exclusive yeah that's true. Um, you said you live in Italy now yeah yeah and- which is um. It's an eye opener, and um, I was thinking about this, and and this is one of the the things that bug me the most now. It's this hierarchy in job. It's like when um, this reporter, um, I can't remember who it was, um, that was asking President Trump a few days ago a question, and he's basically, I'm not going to tell you, and she's like, well, I don't want to get in this fight with you. He goes, well, it's not a fight to get into because I'm president and you're not. It's like we have this pecking order, you know what? But in Italy, you see the people with the orange pants who sweep, sweep the streets every day. They may not be as prestigious as the brain surgeon, but you know what? I don't need a brain surgeon today. If those people don't come and clean my streets, it's going to smell and rats are going to come. So in Rome, we have these collective garbage bins, and they're cleaned every day, even on Christmas, even on New Year's. So there are people working all the holidays for all of us. And to me, that's an important job. We're in the States, bus drivers, garbage collectors. Let's face it. They're not very prestigious. If my bus driver doesn't show up, I'm not making it to work. If the garbage collector doesn't come up, my city's going to smell. These are important jobs, and they're having coffee along this, along with everyone else, with the, you know, with the senator, with the the banker, with the tour guide, with everybody. It's like it's a community. We're in the states. You have this huge separation, rich behind these fences. Um, when I lived in L.A., I drove past Bel Air a million times. I never went in because I wasn't allowed in. But in in Rome, you know, obviously. The rich person, they have the top floor of a building where the rest of us live, you know, communally, multiple condos on a floor. But we walk the same streets. We see each other, on, you know, sometimes in the metro. And otherwise, otherwise, they're taking a car. But you see everybody, the whole community. Where in the States, everything is segregated. Um, maybe in Detroit and Chicago by color. Um, other places, maybe by religion, but definitely by economic status. I always considered myself lucky. My mother literally was off a boat. My mother never spoke English. Um, my friends, you know, some friends would be mean as kids. Like, what? Is your mother just off a boat? In fact, she was. My dad, you know, was only a couple generations from Ireland. Um, I was fortunate. I was born in the States. I got an Italian passport. My mother, I mean, American passport. My mother was Italian. I got an Italian passport. So I got two passports for doing nothing. I mean, what if I would have been born in some poor African country? I mean, my life would be totally different just on the sheer luck. So I know immigration is a big problem here and in the U.S., but um, I'm under the simple impression that if you're not hurting me, let's not go crazy and pay too much in taxes, but pay some taxes. Who cares where you're from? But, but again, I, I'm a product of where I grew up. Um, when I worked at NASA, all my bosses were women. And all the, the people of color I knew were PhD in astrophysics. So when people would be like, oh, you know how those black people are, I'm like, yeah, they're smarter than you. And they'd be like, you know how women are? Like, well, you better listen to them because they'll fire you. So, I mean, I grew up in an era where there wasn't this male-woman divide and sense of 
of power. I mean, all my bosses were women, so it seemed like women were more powerful. And it wasn't. And obviously, growing up outside Detroit, I don't want to make make light of it. Um, I didn't know many black people because it was so segregated. So the few that I knew of color were all well educated. So obviously, I know the the whole world's not like this, but our our own individual perspective. It's um, it's important. And this is the thing. Gandhi had said the the most important thing for a well functioning um, democracy is a well educated electorate. And people don't know the story of the U.S. They don't know that we didn't want a king. You 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 bring up Rodney and I. We've had guests on, and we talk a lot about this idea of representation from the I want to be represented perspective. But I think you are a that story is an unbelievable example of the power of representation from the other side of it where someone sees the the representation of the black community as phds or women as bosses and powerful like we don't talk about these things because they're some hokey pokey feeling right it is uh it is um a a really great example i'm glad you shared that story because i think it's it's super important. I just think I it took away from me anyone I meet. It doesn't. I don't have that stereotype. Well, it's a woman. I better not listen to her for this reason. Or this person doesn't look like me. I shouldn't listen for this reason. It's well, they're an authority. They they've gotten their degree, and um, they should be listened to just like anyone else. But um, I so you know looking, more I, about the politics than a lot of people I talk to, like American politics. Well, pol- like Italian and American. Well, like. Your interest, your interest in it is interesting to me because I'm trying to get people to be more interested in local politics and understand how much that affects actually affects them versus the national picture. Like to kind of to your point there, like the the federal government, like roads and and big picture embargo trading, like all that kind of stuff is there, but like day to day, that's not really that important to you. Like why? Like is do you have any thoughts on how to get people interested in like the, the, the things that are actually more important? Actually, um, I don't know if this is the reason why I'm so interested, but okay, I mean, think, if I think of my earliest childhood memories other than the space program, which is a government endeavor, and it's important, I mean, because the government, they're always saying, oh, we, you know, we don't want to pick winners and losers. That's all they do. When you <laughs> decide to tax somebody more than somebody else, you've picked. When you decide to build a battleship instead of a school or, or a, a, a sounding rocket, You've met, you've picked. But when I was a kid, um, there were millages that you had to vote for, and it was always, am I going to play sports or not? It depended on that vote. So it, it was important politics. It's and then when my brother, my brother moved to Columbia, Maryland, which was one of these program cities. You know, everything is planned. You need a permission to paint your fence, or if you could have a fence. So talk about politics at the local level. Depending on who you vote for, it depends whether or not you can have a fence. Depends what you, color you can paint your fence. And then for me, it was, can I play football this year? So wow. local politics means everything. And to this day, I mean, your sheriff, your dog collector. Um, when I lived in California, I never voted for the things that didn't, like for school board. I don't have kids. Why should I tell some other parents what their kids should be doing? So I wouldn't vote for those. But anything that could affect me, I voted for because it could affect me. Where today, I mean, another thing that really drives me nuts is, you should be forced to read any issue, but people go in, they just pull the lever R or pull the lever D without, a lot of times, um, and this is fun to do on my tours. 
So I'll meet Americans and they're really into politics and they're going on and on. And then um, I'll find out what state they're from and I'll ask them who their senators are and they can't tell me their names. And I know them. I'm like, why should I know them? I don't even live in your state. But you have all these opinions on politics, but you don't know who in theory, you know. You don't know who you should call to have an effect on that. How much would you say the the dichotomy of a two party system? Because, you know, our republic has not always been just two parties. Right. Right. And and the two parties that exist have changed and evolved where the Democratic Party was much more supportive of slavery in its history than it is now. Um, How much would you say that? plays a role seeing that you have, uh, you know, 19 parties in Italy that's certainly been broken down and heading into a two-party-like system. Do, do you see that being a problem or a big contributor to the problem? Do you, like, what, what are your thoughts? You can look at it both ways, but I would think it's an advantage. Again, we don't all have the same views. And to put us in two boxes is very difficult. And with the way we have it now, it's like, okay, the winner is the winner and screw the loser, we're gonna do whatever we want. Where when you have many parties and many people that have to pull, you know, you can't have half the boat pulling the oar one way and half doing, going opposite, we gotta to pull together. And so by having a lot of differing parties, you, you realize we're not all gonna think alike, we all have to get along. We all, we're either gonna, you know, start drilling holes in the boats to screw ourselves, or we're gonna make this thing work together. Where in the States, it seems like, there is no us anymore. It's we and they. There's, there's no, we're Americans first. It's we're Republicans. And okay, it's easy to blame the people in power now because all you have to do is go back to um, Obama's inauguration when Boner from Ohio and McConnell um, kind of like get together and they say our only goal is to make him a one-term president. Now, if they would say we're going to make every American rich and happy and we're going to vote our guys in, fine. But they just said what they were going to do. We're going to, anything he wants to do, we're going to block, no matter how good it is. And back to representative government. Okay, so you're from West Virginia. Your senator should say we should all be snorting coal dust and we're going to put coal dust instead of sugar in our coffee. The rest of the country, the other senators are like, well, dudes, let's slow down. So it's like you'd expect a Michigan senator to be pro-auto and just like a California senator be pro film industry or pro orange growing. Pro kale. Yeah. But as a country, you have to like, okay, the rest of us should get together and, and temper that. But there's no, no more tempering based on geography. It's based on politics. This, this, I don't have many pet peeves these days, but the, the, I'll call it fanboyism. Uh, the, I like Google. So everything Google does is great. Like mm-hmm. not looking at the individual things that they do. Um, I like, I like Xbox. I don't like PlayStation. I like red. I don't like blue. Like it's in like this, and it's the simplification thing our brain does. I think to to make it, but it drives me crazy. It's it's, it's an interesting point that you make, Roddy. That we all do to for whatever reason love what we love and validate that we love it, so it's the best. I mean, wow. I get it from a neuroscience standpoint. I just, it yeah, bothers totally. me. It, it um, too, because I think to, to Pete's point in Italy, it doesn't have to be that way. Right. Right. Like the, the two topics, like you said, Pete, that you don't talk about religion and politics, especially at the dinner table. Well, mm-hmm. that's where it happens. It's the concept of breaking right. bread. Like, you break that bread. Yeah. Place. yeah. 
to have that it's conversation. Funny. Just today, my aunt was mad at me because um, it, 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 it'll be over in two minutes, but it was a heated discussion because she was quoting, you know, biblical verses. And I'm like, well, how do you know that's what was said then? And, you know, it just... It, and it just out of the blue, we're just we're talking about football one minute, then she says something and and it comes up and it's but it, in the States, you always avoid the sensitive subject. But here it's like, OK, it's not that you go for it, but it was brought up. I disagree with it. Um, I just want to know how you know something. And it and it's and it's talked about in, you know, and at the end, we both agree we're not going to ever agree, but it's we're not going to stop talking about it. It's, yeah, um, gonna, it's an important subject. You know, my co that same cousin joined the Republican coalition or whatever student body Republican representation at her extremely liberal school in Connecticut. And mm. she had friends defriend her. It's like, nope, you're not going to be my friend anymore. It's like, why? Wow. Like, that I is don't, sad. I don't functionally, and that's the state of where we're at, right? There are so many people who, um, you know, another podcast I listened to. There's in it was it Minnesota, the um, they, Minnesota, they, they, uh, they, it's all about trying to. There is a, a subset of the Democratic Party that wants to bring in the quote unquote pro life Democrat, and there are so many people who are like, no, oh. that's not possible. Yeah. You're a Democrat. Nope you 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 cannot be pro life. Like this doesn't make any sense. Why it was like Arkansas. No, it was somewhere up north. I had to. Rodney, when you were in Rome. Yeah. Did you see the Capuchin Crypts? Yes. I, uh, so that that has been a, I will call, defining moment in my life. I'm actually designing a tattoo around some of the stuff in the crypts. Nice. This is one thing, okay, it's hard to, to put your life, okay, this is only business, this is only pleasure. Life is life. If politics are important, it infuses its way. Just like Michigan Ohio State's important. That's why on all my tours, I was telling you, um, I always make the joke, if I'm going to blame anyone for anything today, it's going to be Hitler, Napoleon, or people from Ohio, because it's always close you know, to the vest. So when you go into the Capuchin Crypts, you see 4,000 sets of other human beings nailed and wired to the walls, in a nice way, if you could say that, Bones. done by religious people to their brethren for teaching purposes. They never expected me or you or anyone else to see them. They did this for their own reasons. But what I like the most out of it, you have these um, these full skeletons in their habits. They're bent over in humility and supplication. And they're telling you, they're servants. They serve the sick and the poor on behalf of their beliefs, on behalf of the God they believe in. And I always say on every tour, I'm like, I just wish our politicians would remember who they serve. Um, back to Keith's points about being represented. You are their bosses, but they treat you in a manner that... If you treated your, your boss like that, you'd be fired. Um, it's just interesting. And, um, and it's sad for me in Ohio that you have term limits. When people had the big argument about term limits, you do have term limits. You can vote people out. Um, and it's sad. I mean, think about it, Like, okay, whether you liked Obama or not, I thought he was an adult. I thought he was intelligent. And I thought it would, the definition of the word thoughtful, he thought, he didn't react, he didn't you know, visceral, this feels right, I'm going to throw a brick through a window. He thought about what he was going to do. He thought about the, the repercussions and the ramifications where the current president doesn't. If you have a great president, why wouldn't you want one more term out of them? Or if I'm not a fan of Kasich one way or the other, but 
if he's good for Ohio, why not allow him to continue? And it's especially um, these states that put limits on their representatives. Over time, they move up into committees. They may even chair a committee. They may even do more good for your state. Why would you preclude that? Just because FDR won four elections, the Republicans didn't like it, and they changed the Constitution, why must it filter all the way down? It's one of these things that it just feels good. You're right. We should give somebody else a chance. That seems the American way. That's more fair. But if somebody's doing such a great job, why stop them or her from continuing to do so? Two thoughts. One, on the capuchin monks. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, like I said, like I, I, I love, loved that. And, the, um, and I just finished a neuroscience book, and one of the first things it talked about is that everything regresses to the mean. Um, negative, positive. And so, like, the brain's mean is survival. So, like, when you're a representative of people, like, you may be super thankful that they elected you, like, five days after, but 40 days after, 60 days after, two years later, you're just surviving. Like, you're not really worried about them unless there are constant reminders. So, like, the Capuchin monks, they go into the crypts daily, like, multiple times a day and remember their purpose. They remember that, like, for them, their faith, and, like, they remember that, like, those, those, um those remains of their brethren, like that soon they will be that, like this life is, is not, is not permanent and they're going to be that one day so that they have to stay dedicated to their purpose. Like they have a daily reminder. And like, I don't think our senators and our representatives have that daily reminder. So they regress to the mean of survival. And this goes to my second point, why I disagree with you on term limits, because there is no reminder the, the danger and the problem becomes that they become solely focused on getting reelected, not serving the people. So while Kasich or somebody may be good for the state overall, or they may be a smart individual or good thinker, like how, how many things and, and, and I think some of the things you said about term limits make a lot of sense. Like we should look at that. However, in most cases, and, and I think we should look at this from a numbers perspective, like how often are the people being served versus the individual who is holding that seat? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's the same thing, you know, when it comes to, you know, capitalism or anything like we talked about earlier with 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 companies. Like at the end of the day, they are their survival is to make a profit regardless you know, even if it's in their best interest to pay people $15 an hour in the long term, maybe they're having a bad quarter and maybe they're shareholders, whatever the case may be, and they're going to do something that's morally repugnant, but it, it impacts the bottom line. Because I, too, would disagree on the term limits. You know, and I thought about that the other day, a couple of weeks ago, actually, um, as it relates to Kasich, because I, I don't think we have a better replacement for him. So it's like, well, you're codifying an option that you already have. Yep. If you think this guy has become too self-serving, that he's or she is not putting forth the constituents best interest, you just vote him out of office. And I, and I agree with that uh, on, yeah. its, on its face. I agree with that in its principle. But at the same time, you know, we and this is where I think fundamentally you know, the two party system actually hurts us is the fact mm. that a general election in November of 2016, we had 270 million registered voters or potential registered voters. How many people showed up? 
to the polls. Half it was of that. 100, 120, 130, yeah. maybe 140, right? So a little over half of that. So, you know, yes, from a statistical standpoint, we can say, well, that is a large represent, you know, representative sample of the overall sentiment of the United States. But how many people voted for one because they weren't voting for the other? Or how many right. people, right? There's just so many pieces I, of human behavior that go into the voting booth that may not be educated or it may not be, you know, if, you, if you're working three jobs, but you still find the value of voting, like, how are you going to find time to not vote D or R? Um, whereas, right, it know, simplifies it, right? It's just easy. Like, I can go in and right. I make my selection. And right. I think, Pete, you're well, right. In a perfect world, I, I think yeah. that's how it works. I talked to a representative out here, and she said, you know how many people show up at midterms? 20% of eligible voters. So you know what happens? We only have to talk to 20% of the people. Like, because everybody else isn't paying attention. So we can talk to our base and fire them up because they're the ones that are going to show up. And then I can right. run it. I can stay in office as long as I want because the people aren't paying attention. They're sleeping at the wheel when they need to make that decision to codify whether or not this person is doing the right things for us. And then that's how well, things like gerrymandering happen. That's how things like like all of this shit. That's how it all happens because because it, it happens in the night when nobody's paying attention. Right. It all goes together. I mean, money's a big issue, but okay. Um, America's we're the country is. Is stuck in ways. Okay, I mean, look at the Senate. The Senate looks like a very niche club. It's 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 probably the thing that's sustained the longest. It looks the way the country did in the 18th century. I mean, the system they set up was great for this small country, and at the time, it's three million people, you know, sequestered along the coast of this continent. Um, now you're you know, there's people Hawaii and Alaska, and people Puerto Rico should um, have representation if. If, you know, if they're part of the U.S. and same with the people of the District of Columbia, um, we are living in the 21st century. Now, I do think what you just said, Pete, I think would be an interest. You know, it, it, it is the way where you could get rid of term limits, in my opinion, and, and have six, have have it not turn into everything that Roddy mentioned is you have a month and a half of campaigning. The rest of the year is governing because, you know, you aren't allowed to campaign and you take the finance out of it to say you get this many ads equally distributed amongst, you know, people who are running for office and this is how they get distributed in whatever the case. So you, you create an equal playing field because at the end of the day, you know, being a politician isn't about having the most money, at least in theory. You get rid of that. Right. You can get rid of term limits because at that point, you know, you 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 actually are putting it in a in a in a space that that allows for campaign. Or or we could go real old school. Who was it? The Greeks? What was it? The Greeks or the Romans that uh, had a, a corporal punishment rule for senators that didn't uphold their um, their promises? Well, in Roman times. Um... Elected officials who took bribes and <laughs> look at the look at the current government um, and those who perjured themselves in court. And again, think of the current government. Mm. They were thrown to their deaths off the Terpian rocks. Look, I'm so not saying we go thrown. there. I'm just saying <laughs> yeah. it, we should talk about it. I have and, an and uncle. Then maybe term limits will fix themselves. I don't agree with corporal. I don't believe in killing anyone for any reason. We don't. If you think it's so egregious to take a life that you're going to punish him by taking their life, it's Kind of, you know, to me, it it doesn't make sense. But 
but um, it, it just means the Romans, um, they realized that if a politician lies in court, especially the courts don't work if people are allowed to lie. So they made it the greatest punishment if you lied. If you take a bribe in office, you cannot be serving the people that elected you. You're clearly serving the person that paid you. They realize the government won't work and courts won't work if these things happen. But if you think about the U.S. government right now, look at how many um, cabinet officials are being busted for for a lot of improprieties dealing with money from the outside. Yeah, so so Pete, you know, as we kind, kind of come to an abrupt stop to a conversation that I think we could continue to have and Absolutely. didn't even get to some of the other things that fall into your area of expertise in, in climate change and science. So we might have to actually have to have you back so right. we could dig into that. So, so look for a potential invite. What I, what I'm I would hoping love to, to and uh, I apologize that I took us off. Um, no, I thought it was great. This we we often we often say we want to talk more about politics and have you know open and honest conversations around it. Even you know if passion gets the better of us, we can we can end the this discussion um, civilly. That civil place to end the discussion would be to say, if there's anything you wanted to leave our audience with um, that you want them to take away, what would that be? I don't know. I mean, well, from my perspective, it's um, well, you always have to have hope and you don't know what's coming tomorrow. You could be surprised. But um, I mean, like I said earlier, um, I consider myself a well-educated monkey. I learned how to walk and talk. I learned how to do a lot of other things. I never in my wildest dreams thought as a kid I would be, you know, living in Italy. I mean, even though it was always considered like home, my mother was from there. It always felt better. But I mean, I considered, you know, I would be in the States until I died. I, and I don't know, it just um, life take, gives you some interesting things. I mean, the, the more education you get, the more opportunities that you take, the more people that you meet. And that's, I mean, I mean, so often, and this is the one question that just drives me nuts. People ask, is this all you do when I'm like doing tours for them? It's how degrading. It's like, you seem to be an intelligent person. You should be doing more. But I choose mm -hmm. to do this. I get to meet a lot of people. I mean, I try writing. Nobody's bought my stuff yet. Um, and I always joke because um, I wrote a screenplay. Nobody bought it. I wrote a novel. Nobody bought it. Somebody asked me what kind of writing um, pays best. And I just joke. I assume ransom notes. But um, maybe we'll try that next. But um, you guys are doing something that I, I find very fascinating because to me, the biggest thing, and I try this on tours, there's so many you know, well-heeled Republicans that travel and they hire me. And we couldn't disagree more, but it's so difficult to be able to just to, to talk without being viscerally emotional. Like they find out, you know, okay, this is funny. Um, I was just telling somebody, somebody asked in the tour, where can I get good gelato? And I'm like, this is not my favorite gelato place. It may be in my top five, but it's Rome's most famous. That's not about Giolitti. And I said, when President Obama was here, he took his daughters for gelato there. I'm not sure how he got there, but I'm sure he asked somebody in the Italian government, where can I take my girls for good gelato? And this is what they told him. I'm sure the president of the United States is not being misled on where you can get good gelato. And I got a review and this person was, well, Pete's just pumping his liberal agenda down our throat. It's, it's in Italy, we all have the saying, you know, you make your own movie. We all watch the same event, but we make our own movie in our head. We edit it 
and you know we cut out what we want and we see we remember the scene in our head like a movie and my scene might be different from your scene but um i don't know i would just say do what you guys are doing talk to more people um listen to more points of view um i mean obviously we don't agree on everything but you know um maybe we can try to convince each other in the next time we 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 talk <laughs>